Hi, you're listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource supported by our listeners. To find out how and learn more about our program, visit our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Now on with the show. Welcome back. Today we conclude episode 110, where Tom, Pedro, and our special guest, Laura Adler, are discussing two articles from Lauren Edelman, published in the American Journal of Sociology. Legal Ambiguity and Symbolic Structures, Organizational Mediation of Civil Rights Law, published in 1992, and The Endogeneity of Legal Regulation, Grievance Procedures as Rational Myth, with Christopher Uggen and Howard Erlinger in 1999. In part two, we consider the contemporary implications of these classic works, as the relationships between organizations and the law have continued to evolve. If you missed part one, you can access it through our website at www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. We now rejoin the conversation. Okay, so in, uh, in part one, we talked about Edelman's uh, two articles uh, from 1992 and 1999 that uh, basically took a look at the implementation of equal opportunity and affirmative action laws, starting with the titles, uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act through uh, all of the implementation thereafter. And what I casually mentioned during the, the first part, but I definitely want to get into it a little bit more, whenever I see a theory that starts along a particular domain or context, such as in this particular case, the, t- the nexus between the uh, law and organizations, using EEO and affirmative action as the start point, how well does this transfer to other legal questions? For example, with uh, traffic laws or appropriations laws, uh, how well do these ideas translate to those where the subject is not necessarily about human, uh, about people, so much as it is about the distribution of resources or the regulation of behavior? which is kind of how I would classify a lot of uh, traffic law. You know, there are some commonalities of theme in that sometimes the law is, like traffic laws do have often weak enforcement mechanisms which cause institutionalizations of behaviors totally opposite of what the law was expecting. With appropriations, that one is uh, particularly interesting because money gets colored a certain way. And uh, the, you allocate uh, resources specifically to fund a particular program or function, and it's invariable. And yet, there are workarounds. There are all sorts of other structures that come up that allow for the reallocation. So I just kind of wanted to start with a kind of a question is, uh, do these present a general theory of thinking about law and organizations, or may they be too specific towards human resource-oriented type questions? So it's a fantastic question. And I think that Edelman in her 1992 article really provides a great answer in the way she theorizes the three factors that create the opportunity for the mediation of law. And I love this as an example for all of us as scholars, uh, because as a primarily qualitative researcher, I'm constantly trying to think about how I can bring my scope conditions into my theorization, right? Not just say my argument stops here because that's my scope, but say, how can I theorize from these limits? And so she has those three factors, the vague language or the ambiguity, 
the uh, regulation of procedures rather than outcomes and weak enforcement. And these are the conditions under which there are opportunities to mediate the impact of law. And she's talking about opportunities for organizations to mediate the impact of law, but I think it could really be anyone, right? It could be individuals, it could be city governments or school districts, right? It could be lots of different kinds of actors can have opportunities to mediate the impact of law, but under these conditions. So that sets a certain limit vis-a-vis traffic, right? Is there weak enforcement? Well, there's weak enforcement in that you don't have eyes everywhere, but there's strong enforcement in that the police officer can issue a ticket if they observe a violation, which is not something that there's no policing the equal opportunity sort of dynamics within organizations in that direct way. Regulation of procedures rather than outcomes, right? Some of these rules that you were describing are really about outcomes. And if you have outcomes, you have a reduce that that are prescribed in the law, you have a reduced ability to mediate the impact of the law because the law is more specific. So I think um I think that's the answer to the question, in my mind at least, is these three factors provide the scope conditions for the mediation of the impact of law, um, not limited to this domain, but limited in its applicability by these opportunities. So I also had a similar thought as Tom, and maybe this is just because I was not you know, born in the U.S., I don't live in the U.S., and I was thinking about context as I was reading these papers. And of course, there's a lot about the particularities of the legal system in the U.S. in the paper, because of course, as any good researcher, She's going through the details, right? But I'm trying to think of that now. I have just heard what you said, Laura, in terms of can we take that less as a bug and more of a feature of the theory, right? So I'm trying to think. Initially, I thought, well, how does it work for civil law versus common law, which is the case of the US, right? So in a case in which you have things that are more codified and therefore one can imagine more stable in the way in which legislation is created and enforced and so on, or in a case in which have the power of the state to be stronger in a society um, in which there is less, I would say, the expectation that suing each other is possible and common and a practice that is socially understood to be done, right? That you have socially the right to do that. What would mean to think through what Edelman tells us? And I was thinking, well, maybe if you think there's in terms of an explanation, I think that one thing is that given such salience of the concern of a potential liability, one can imagine that organizations become particularly defensive, which is what we see between the lines, right? This undergoing concern that's something that one could have read in a different context and different situation that anti-discrimination is going to open up the pool of qualified people, is going to change the way we evaluate talent, but it seems to be as a threat, as a constraint, because we are in particular, of course, historical, geographical, cultural context, right? So I think it's interesting also to think through how some of the context may lead to some kind of way of organizing and some concerns as organizations function that is, you know, almost in the back of their mind of any manager. Yeah, I love that point. And the United States is obviously a famously litigious country, but it's also, it's prescribed in our legal arrangements, right? There is no enforcement mechanism for these particular laws other than employee complaints. 
right? Again, there's no policeman going around to all the organizations saying, how well have you done on this? They do have some mandatory reporting, but there's no sanctions if their uh, reported numbers are trending in a particular direction. And so we've sort of mandated this conflictual approach. And I think that, that you're exactly right, Pedro, that, that sets us up for a defensive posture on the part of organizations, that their goal is to sort of fend off these complaints or fend off at least the legal legitimacy of these complaints at all costs and not at all sort of to focus on the substantive goals of the law, which were to increase representation. So I think this is important because it's another sort of pathway for sort of institutional racism, institutional sexism, right? This is, you don't necessarily need an organization that wants to hire white men in order to end up with an organization or that wants to privilege white men in the hiring process in order to have an organization that resists diversification because diversification is being pushed on them through these strategies that increase their liability. So you end up with the institutionalization of these dynamics and and this defensive posture from organizations. Now, in terms of the reduction of legal liability or the mitigation of legal liability, again, I'm I'm, I'm also thinking two layers. There's the one layer in which is very specific to the law in which they're concerned about. So you create structures, you institutionalize norms aimed to try to limit the liability. But then there's also another layer, which is sort of just anti-law, <laughs> I guess would be the better way to put it. And I'm not sure I see the difference between the two necessarily in the way that uh, people talk. It's kind of like pushing back against or trying to come up with ways to prevent any interference in one's activity as over and above because of the fear, like uh, such as the unpredictability about how court opinions may come down. So rather than go through the process, it's like avoid the risk entirely uh, because you don't know how things are going to come down. You don't know how bad the judgment could very well be. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons like that that would suggest I mean, I, I I hear you and I hear, uh, you know, I wholly get the question about, you know, we really should not see organizations so defensive against legal liability. But on the other hand, we shouldn't be surprised by it either, because it seems like uh, there's there's scapegoating. There's all of these other potential ways of interpreting the outcome of a what might be a legitimate procedure that organizations would want to avoid at all costs. And so it's better to just fight against it, just to fight against it, to, sh- to, to put a stake on the ground. What do we think? Yeah, I think it's a great point. And it gets to something I've been grappling with a lot as I've been working on some of these projects that are related in, in being about the relationship between organizations and the law. People who write about this often juxtapose symbolic compliance, which is basically about resisting legal intervention, and true compliance, which is sometimes called discipline, right? So Aaron Horvath in his recent AJS article has a nice sort of overview of these two different approaches. But I actually have some trouble understanding the distinction between these. When do we know that an organization is complying merely symbolically as opposed to in a truly disciplined fashion? What's the defining distinction there? Is it the extent to which organizations change their practices? 
right? Because Lauren Edelman is talking about the invention of these EEO offices, and she's arguing that this is symbolic compliance, but this is a real thing that organizations are doing, and they're putting real money behind it. So is symbolic compliance about a reduced amount of investment relative to true discipline, or is it about the extent to which organizations actually achieve some new outcome? right? Is symbolic compliance potentially something that's very costly, but it just doesn't actually achieve the goal, uh, whereas true discipline does achieve the goal? Um, or is it about the extent to which they're held accountable? And this is the interpretation that I prefer, is that symbolic compliance is about reducing accountability, and true discipline is about embracing or allowing accountability, saying, as an organization, we are going to be accountable for whatever comes out of this. I've been grappling with these three different sort of ways in which we might want to distinguish between symbolic compliance and discipline uh, or discipline or, or true compliance and the sort of privileged place of accountability in my mind in terms of distinguishing between these two. So can I, compl can I complicate this a little bit? Just because one of the things I was thinking in terms of, you know, when you read my Rowan, but Elderman as well, there is always a idea of the visibility of these structures. And in a world of social media, we know that this thing got more complicated, right? That the expectations from society and the calls are not just coming from the square, right? But also coming from all sorts of debates and all sorts of, you know, new channels in which both people can express and voice discontent and coordinate and organize and demand new things from organization, but also ways in which we have come to expect organizations should be probably open a little bit more. When you said accountability, I was thinking exactly that, yes, that is important, but also there are new ways of being accountable and organizations can strategically also use them. And at the same time, the way information travels and circulates today, right? There is also the danger that misinformation is so rampant that there is all sorts of campaigns in which different sides demand different things from organizations, and some of that is built on all sorts of potentially misinformation. So the, the picture has become also more complex in all of this. I would add that uh, you know when we start talking about accountability, and this gets to you know how do you really measure progress towards the real goal, not just true compliance within an organization, but true compliance uh, more broadly. To what extent can an organization be held accountable for things that it cannot reasonably control? I'll give sort of like a vague example, but uh, what happens when you accidentally hire a real jerk who comes into the organization and messes up what has been 10 years of strong, concerted effort to achieve true compliance in, uh, in a particular way. Now, in that particular instance, you would hope that the organization is able to demonstrate something closer to true compliance by taking action against that particular jerk. But not all jerks are overt. Getting more to the point, sometimes accountability is a, is almost a catch-up game. And if society moves faster than the organizations can keep keep up, does it is is it possible to org uh, to victimize an organization because let's say that they just happen to be big and they happen to have some of the characteristics where they're a little bit further you know from the 1992 article where they're a bit further removed from the legal process and so would not naturally stay up with how things are changing in society. And then something happens and they wind up getting hammered. Now, it's a hypothetic, so I can't get too fancy with it. 
But uh, there's all of these uh, myths that come up about why organizations actually trying to avoid being part of this overall big solution. They're trying to just stay out of the way so that they can be let alone and perform what they think is their core function and trying to enforce things quietly. And accountability is, it sounds like something that would seem to be a positive. It would, it's good to have a hammer to try to force change. On the other hand, it can also backfire because of the complexity of the, of the issue. And if the wrong people get punished, it can set a movement back. Does that make sense? Well, one quick thing. You said that society moves quicker than organizations can keep up, but also society is not homogeneous. And a question is jerk to whom? So there is also that layer that, again, we said that when we had the episode on Maya Rowan, the environment is not homogeneous, right? It's social contextual. There's all of different people going around. And of course, organizations are part of the environment, right? So it's not, you know, organizations versus society. It's a, it's a more complicated interplay. And I think Pedro's exactly right. There's both, there's variation in that social world, right? So that organizations are likely to have both internal stakeholders and external audiences who are pro a certain initiative and others who are con, right? Again, both inside and outside. So the boundary of the organization is sort of not the defining feature of that perhaps antagonism. But I think it's a good point. And gets to something that uh, that I'm really fascinated with that I think Edelman is discussing indirectly, which is the fact that legislators really don't understand how organizations work, right? And so they're trying to enact these social goals, but they're doing it basically flying blind vis-a-vis like the internal dynamics of organizations and therefore the likely impact of their actions on organizations. So I just wanted to bring up an example from my own work. So I've, as I said, I've looked at issues around gender pay inequality and a a very popular law in the U.S. at the city and state level in recent years is this law that uh, institutes what's called a salary history ban, which says that employers cannot ask about uh, candidates' previous salary because that would perpetuate gender inequality going forward. But when I went to ask employers what they were going to do in response, they said, we are at a total loss without this. We are completely dependent on salary history, and we have no idea what to do without it, right? Legislators didn't realize that. They thought this was a simple thing. Oh, it's one of many questions that employers ask. Now they won't ask that question. They'll set pay absent that information. No problemo. In fact, It was a huge issue for employers. They ended up designing this alternative. You can find it advertised in lots of HR blog posts that you should instead just ask about salary expectations, right? That's legally allowed. It's non-discriminatory. But in fact, all of the research on gender and status suggests that this is going to be bad for women. Women are penalized when they ask for more. Women's own self-assessments are discounted relative to their demonstrated performance. And so you end up with employers with these unintended outcomes that employers are pursuing because the laws are not designed with an attention to uh, what goes on with an organization. So another example that's become the focus of lots of attention recently is that after the salary history ban, legislators said, oh, that didn't really work. Let's try something else. We're going to require that organizations disclose the salary range associated with the job, right? There are these new pay transparency laws if you're being hired to be an associate accountant. They, they have to advertise, this is the pay range associated with that job. 
But again, they're not attentive to the negotiation dynamics. If you're applying for the associate accountant role and the range says, you know, 60 to $90,000, you're going to come in asking for $90,000, right? Every time. And so what employers have done is they've redefined their salary bands to be so broad, they're basically meaningless. 50 to $450,000, right? To just make it so that there's no there there that potential candidates can use to negotiate with. And so again, we have this cat and mouse game with legislators who are not understanding how organizations work. They're well-intended, but they're sort of throwing these new requirements at employers that are completely incompatible with the organizational practices that exist. And they, they box employers in, in a way that facilitates this these creative solutions, right? So these look like organizational non-compliance, but in fact, they're this predictable product of a mismatch between the design of the legal intervention and the practices that organizations are relying on. Uh, could, could you just give us a little bit more about why organizations are so dependent on those salary histories? Why couldn't they live without it? Yeah. So uh, that was what really intrigued me in my interviews. I was so surprised. I thought, oh, well, there's lots of things you could be. First of all, you could just pay everyone the same to start. And then you could offer them, you know, significant performance-based increases, increases for certain certifications or skills or things like that. Um, No dice. Employers are like, there's no way that we're going to go down that road. And so, um, so I became really interested in in how we got there. And that's why I started looking back historically at how we'd moved from a really structured system, a system called job evaluation, in which employers sort of valued each component of the job and based pay on the sum of those sort of internal valuation decisions. And we'd moved to this market-based approach precisely because of these legal decisions that said basing pay on the external market reduces your burden of legal liability. So if you're basing pay on these internal decisions, I think that Pedro is worth X dollars because Pedro has a, this kind of degree and has this these many years of experience and has this kind of certification. That's your decision. And if you hire Pedro at X and Laura at X minus $20,000, and Laura has similar qualifications to Pedro, you're going to be in big trouble. But if those inequalities emerge from the external market, that's not your problem. So if Pedro comes in and says, oh, well, you're going to have to pay me X in order to come to your company, because that's what I was making before. And Laura says, you only need to pay me X minus $20,000, because I was making much less than Pedro prior to this. Those are inequalities that emerge from the market. And so salary history is seen as an external market-based indicator that reduces organizational accountability for inequalities that inevitably result from the pay setting process. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it does, because I'm a public sector employee, and uh, so our whole system is completely, totally different. It's just interesting. I have my own experiences with legislators, and they tend to be very well-informed in a lot of things. So it's, you know, I was uh, looking for, you know, okay, how could, how could that kind of a uh, disconnect happen? It, it could very well be as simple as, you know, if you're, uh, if you're trying to write a law and your pedigree is entirely public sector, you're operating under a whole different set of paradigms than private sector, which then, you know, certainly raises one tension about just about any law that involves people, resources, whatever. That would just seem to be like a natural source of tension. 
uh, because the public and private sectors operate under such completely different paradigms. Absolutely. So that this whole the all the shenanigans with the with the salary ranges that would not be possible in the public sector because in the public sector those salary ranges are negotiated with unions they are set they cannot be just monkeyed around with um, but in the private sector there's no such regulations and so the private sector just blows up their salary ranges and says okay now you have nothing nothing to negotiate with we're complying with the law but we've you know. We're, we're still in the same place vis-a-vis pay for these individual candidates. So this question, these points, you know, are making me think on something that I got from raising also the, the papers, especially the second one, which is the idea of this, the stories, the culture, the consciousness, the conception one has about the law, right? So you're talking about exactly how legislators may have a particular understanding about organizations, and Tom was saying that might be almost like an implicitly grounded in the public sector, but we can also think in terms of the other way around on how HR professionals, managers, top leaders, right, may have a conception of what is legally normal, allowed, common, right? And we talked a little bit about this, right? And this idea that the US context might be one more litigious versus another one. But I also wonder how that may influence the work of particular professional groups of organizations, such as human resources people, what kind of ideas they may have and how that may vary depending on particular backgrounds and specialties or perspectives that may exist across the workplace, right? I think there's also another important question. I know, for example, the work of Emilio Castilla and Aruna Raganantan, right, on this whole idea about how managers have different understandings of merit and how that influences the particular ways they evaluate skills. And I think they studied a technological organization. But one can think also in these broader terms about how they may predict, assess, value, weigh the risk that organizations have, the value of diversity, and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I love that point. And I think it's, you know, people who write about legal consciousness, I think that's explicitly the focus of what they're writing about. But I think Edelman is tapping into this in a really profound way, right? She's arguing throughout these articles that it isn't the law itself that's shaping organizational policies. It's this broader legal environment. It's these normative factors, these beliefs, these ideologies of rationality, she calls them in one of the articles, um, that are shaping the way people pursue their attempt to head off legal liability, right? It's not the text of the law itself, but this broader environment that includes uh, stories about the right way to conform with the law, but also normative pressure, right, to comply with, uh, to do what others have done. We mentioned in part one of the session, that once all your competitors have adopted these policies, all of a sudden there's a, there's much more pressure on you to adopt them, right? So there's this normative dynamic as well, this this legal environment that's shaping what organizations are doing beyond just the text of the law itself. I'm also thinking about uh, what happens. Well, in the first article, in uh, with the the three characteristics the, or the three factors, the ambiguity, the weak enforcement mechanisms, I had put a fourth one down as sort of like a question mark, and that is the purpose behind the law. Laws can serve different purposes. Some of them prescribe something. It's ones that are really built around procedure. 
There's other laws that, uh, that distribute resources. And then there's other laws, and this is the category of which I was thinking of, where the government is effectively poking somebody in the eye, <laughs> I guess would be the best way to put it. It has a punitive character to it. It is directing or mandating something because organizations are not complying or haven't been doing so, uh, uh, things on their own. And I wonder if that is, you know, not just thinking about EEO and uh, affirmative action, but in general, whether the perception of that or the like uh, how organizations perceive a law as being directed at them affects their mediation differently than, say, if the organization, uh, if uh, like, uh, for example, it, this is this is kind of reminiscent of one of the Guldner books we read or a Guldner article we read where the um, where you have a bureaucratic procedure that or a bureaucratic rule that forms, which is jointly uh, jointly agreed with between the management and the worker. You can think about a law as being jointly, everybody thinks that this law is really good. And so there's going to be, uh, except that maybe it wasn't written perfectly. And so you have uh, you have these mediation procedures going on. But then if there's something where the law really is something coming down from the top and it's written by, say, interest groups who hate the industry. And so it's written in a way or it is perceived to be written in a way that is punitive against that particular industry. To what extent does that influence the way that organizations mediate against it? I mean, I, 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 I think it's a really good point. I do think that there's two ways of interpreting these laws, right? One is that they're poking organizations in the eye. The other is that they're trying to provide more of an equal footing for women and people of color in a country marred by centuries of racism and sexism, right? So organizations, there's a couple premises that were, or there's a couple assumptions that we're starting with, which include the fact that organizations, even if not malicious in intent, are resistant to change. I mentioned before this idea of institutionalized racism. You don't need an organization that wants to be racist in order to have a defense of existing racist practices be a default position for them because they're resistant to change, right? And so you need aggressive policy. You need policy that is going to try and change what organizations are doing if you want to change the landscape for workers who have been discriminated against for decades and centuries. It's difficult to imagine laws that are trying to change the world for the better that aren't annoying someone, right? Uh, or aren't feeling like you're poking them in the eye, right? Because in order to change the world, you have to pressure people to change who don't necessarily want to change. Yeah, I wasn't actually thinking about EEO and affirmative action necessarily. I was actually thinking about monetary regulations, uh, things in more of the financial sector. Those laws can be perceived as punitive if, for example, a particular bank or a financial institution does something really bad and the government regulation is aimed to uh, fix the behaviors uh, across the industry when it really was only you know, one or a few institutions that were at fault. I was going to say, even though that's not what you intended to say, that made me think in a devil's advocate way, right? Because on one hand, you know, cards on the table, I totally agree. I think that, you know, legislation can be an important tool to fight sexism and racism and all of that. But at the same time, when I was reading the papers, I kept thinking, 
not only, especially in the discussion about grievances and how to some extent they don't deliver what we expect, but we also have so much research on complaints. Laura, you mentioned so many research and cases in which, you know, because it's the individual, it's on the burden of the person. And even though I was talking more about the US context, but I was just thinking at the same time about this wonderful book by Sarah Ahmed entitled Complaint, and it's about the higher education sector in Europe mostly, I think it's in the UK mostly, right? And how exactly how there is so much procedures and systems that maybe they're, you know, not realizing what expect them to do, right? So we have the law in place across the world in many places, but maybe because the way it was implemented, maybe because, you know, we talked about the particular understanding and pain that we don't realize the substantive purpose of the law, but at the same time, I kept thinking, what if the problem is not just the substantive goal of the law? What is the problem is that we're expecting the law to do too many things, right? That it cannot resolve, or at least not by itself, such social issues. So I don't know. So I, I was trying to think, you know, what would be if we start the conversation from a different assumption that the law is maybe not the most effective too, but we socially and culturally think because such a central institution to regulate society, right? Basically defines what is good and bad and what can be punished or not and what is the ideal or not and it's literally inscribed and can be enforced in our imagination, right? What is the most solid social structure is the law. So I was trying to think, even though the promise is such, given that we know so much that all the complaints that are not made or are made but don't lead too much or don't lead too much and actually create so much burnout for people, what if thinking about the problem in a legalistic way can be counterproductive to some extent? Yeah, I mean, um, I think it's a really important question and one that I have to think about for another minute. What is true, I think, to your point, is that there is another sort of, and we've touched on this a little bit already, right? But we, we've been talking about legal consciousness or what organizations believe about the law. There's also what the legal institutions we've touched on what they believe about organizations, there's also what they believe about the law, right? And one of the things that's made the law a profoundly limited tool for achieving our social goals is one of the things that Edelman touches on, which is the emphasis on procedure rather than outcome. The hesitance in the courts, again and again, she cites Griggs versus Duke, which is a case in which they make a little bit of a move towards prescribing some actual equality of outcomes within organizations. But from there on, it's a consistent retrenchment, a consistent resistance to actually having a muscular legal standard for saying organizations have to achieve these kinds of targets in terms of representation. And so this emphasis on equality of opportunity has basically severely weakened the ability of legal avenues to deliver real change for um, underrepresented populations within organizations. And these are sort of deeply seated legal beliefs that shape how the legal system itself ends up deciding on these cases with, with consequences for organizations. So I think we can think about the legal beliefs of the organizations, we can think about the organizational beliefs of the law, but we can also think about this evolving set of assumptions on the part of the law about what the law is and isn't allowed to do in terms of intervening in organizational life, and specifically contravening market dynamics, right? Reducing the efficiency of organizations, which becomes something that the courts are less and less willing to do into the 70s and 80s.
things. Yeah, I know that's uh, that we're venturing outside of the scope of what the articles would cover, but I think uh, a, another consideration is obviously in the U.S. system, the laws are written in a rather contentious environment to begin with. And then there's also the question of what would stand judicial uh, review. The constitutionality of a law in the United States system is uh, something that plays heavily into how they're written, which I think encourages some of the, uh, the ambiguity, because uh, if it's too prescriptive in certain ways, it gets too easy to challenge and too easy to strike down. How do the laws are written come into this too, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. There's a whole set of other influences that are also bearing on those legal actors, right? So in writing the Civil Rights Act, obviously the legislatures were were influenced by the Civil Rights Act, you know, social movement pressure. But in some of my work, I've also looked at how court actors have been influenced by the law and economics movement, right? This neoclassical economic thinking that was really pushed aggressively into the courts through this whole institutional apparatus. There's a brilliant book by Stephen Tellers that sort of shows how this unfolded. And the uh, new ideas about the market that had a profound influence on judges ended up constraining how much they wanted to intervene in the business of organizations across a bunch of different dimensions, not just in terms of civil rights law. Um, but including civil rights law also. And so you have these political forces as well that are influencing legislative bodies as well as other legal actors like judges and, and people in the courts. So I had, of course, thought about the power of ideas, right? But I never thought so much of how they apply as well for legislative bodies beyond the traditional ones, right? You know, courts and judges and so on. And given all that we talked about on the conceptions of organizations that the legislative have, about the potential effectiveness of legislation itself and how it shapes for different social actors and theories, how professional groups have ideas and versions about how to construct and resolve problems that may be competing, all of these different groups that have particular understandings that are part of the social world and, of course, are interacting with each other, I think made me see something that we know as social scientists, that of course, we are always constructing the world and these different ideas are competing and the conceptions people bring as they do that, they enact their roles, have powerful influences. Because whatever we take for granted now, when it becomes possible, is the product of all of these interactions and the dominance of particular versions and tools and conceptions, one or the other, which I think just highlights reading the papers, the importance of making or trying to make people more aware exactly when and how are they endorsing some particular understanding on affirming particular limit that is not necessarily in the legislation or in the particular way of enacting a particular procedure, but it's common and it becomes even more reinforced and therefore even more taken for granted, structured, whatever synonym when I'm going to call. Which again, if anything, I think it's a great example of the importance of bringing oh, such a zoological, theoretical, abstract, conceptual understanding to all of this process, be it legislation, creating HR policies, valuing pay, all the stuff that, of course, you study a lot, right? But I think it was an interesting example to see the power of understanding how the social world is made 
and all of these different elements, right? Heading building then all these kind of choices and understandings as they are being remade at every time. I think that's a beautiful way of summing it up and really captures what's so compelling to me about these articles. And I'll, uh, I'll second that. And I'll say that uh, I'm really glad that I, uh, that I read and had a chance to, uh, to, to think about these because I also see a lot of parallelism. Like I'm in a very, very large organization of which executive level decisions and executive level policies run into some of the same things. They've, they may be expressed as uh, as sort of strategic direction to the organization, but a lot of times when it's a very formal directive type of a policy, it's supposed to have the same force of law. And darned if you don't think about these same reactions happening within the organization to the compliance, uh, you know, uh, trying to comply with that strategic direction. I also appreciate that it's not just a matter of how useful this is to think about different legal domains or, you know, horizontally, but also think about down in large organizations who are actually facing some of the same problems of trying to bring about grand outcomes that are difficult to achieve and trying to come up with a of directive force of law type of uh, communication to get the organization, you know, change the direction of the Titanic and only to see the same types of resistance coming from within. So I really enjoyed being able to see it through a, uh, that phenomenon through a different lens. And, and I'll definitely take another look at those uh, at the factors that she laid out in the 1992 article and see how well they apply in this other setting. Yeah, I love that. And I, it's never occurred to me, but I think that that's absolutely true that, you know, I, and I see at the heart of this dynamic, something that could apply equally to sort of top-down organizational strategic imperatives and to legal imperatives coming from the outside, which is Edelman's dilemma, right? This twin sort of these twin and opposing desires on the one hand to signal the compliance in order to gain legitimacy, right? For an organization, it might be legitimacy in the eyes of external stakeholders, but for people within the organization, it's legitimacy in the eyes of your boss or their boss, right? Or your colleagues by by signaling that you're complying. And on the other hand, the idea to reduce uh, the, the desire to reduce the incursion into managerial discretion to sort of as much as possible, maintain the status quo, right? These twin opposing pressures create this dilemma that I think is really fundamentally what Edelman is helping us understand here. And again, it's marrying those ideas of institutionalism about myth and ceremony with ideas about agency and how we try and sort of locally construct rational responses to institutionalized pressure. So I will also return to the article with an eye to thinking about how it can apply to internal organizational dynamics, but I think it's absolutely there in a very similar form. So thank you for that. Special thanks to Laura Adler for joining us on this episode. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of their respective organizations or institutions. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. And if so, please consider subscribing through your favorite podcast service and you won't miss an episode. We also welcome your feedback, so if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Facebook, LinkedIn, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Again, thank you for listening, and we hope to see you when we present another classic reading on organization theory or management science, 
here on Talking About Organizations.